Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Welcome to this week's edition of the On the Record podcast. I have a special treat for you this week. Not one, but two guests. Uh, I have with me today Rebecca Miller, who uh, is the founder of the brand engagement firm Artful, and Michael Wentworth, who's uh, with market insights firm Graybox Intel. And they have a very interesting and unique strategic partnership that allows them to develop uh, some very effective insights and uh, into brands and building brands and uh, helping to create brand engagement and then actually figuring out whether what you're doing works. So I know everybody today in today's environment is interested in ROI. Um, We're going to talk about how you get that and uh, how you can strengthen your brand. So Rebecca, Michael, welcome to both of you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Um, So Rebecca, why don't you kind of get us started here? Um, Tell me a little bit about kind of how Artful came to be and how you and Michael connected um, and just explain in a more articulate way than I can um, how you do what you do. Sure. Happy to do so. Well, Artful came to be because um, there was uh, an obvious gap that I'd identified in the market. And that was the fact that when COVID hit, Um, It seemed that we were not going to be able to have the face-to-face meetings that we typically had had with our customers and our target audiences. And so I I reverted back to, and I'm going to go back just a little bit, Bill, to my days when I was president of Gabbard's, where, you know, we were talking about the targeted customer and how to communicate effectively with them. But what we missed was the emotional attachment piece. And so as we got into the COVID uh, era, I guess is one way to put it. Um, It became obvious to me that there was a gap in what I call the relationship space. And so um, I realized that in order to fill the gap, I was going to have to find a way to monetize uh, the initiative. And so I had um, the opportunity to um, engage with one of my strategic partners, Graybox Intel, Uh, about having them help develop the research component. And so that's how I then got involved with Graybox Intel. And one of the partners there was an old friend of mine from many, many years ago that had been sort of in the marketing communications area in Minneapolis, where, of course, I was with Gabbard's. So that's kind of how it came to be. And, And the gap really was around how to effectively engage and move the consumer from, I guess, what we might call brand engagement to emotional attachment. And this is where, you know, Graybox has been extremely helpful and successful uh, in helping me do that. That's interesting. Um, Michael, That there's a kind of an interesting um, anomaly in, in what Rebecca just shared in that you are conducting research, which at its heart is very database, very scientific, and, and we think of that as very um, unemotional, and yet you're doing that research into a kind of an emotional connection that consumers may have for a brand. Share with me a little bit about um, how you try to ascertain that information from the consumer. Oh, absolutely, Bill. 
So when Rebecca came to us, uh, she had a very compelling proposition. This concept that how do we conduct dialogue with our customers without having access to face-to-face? So many brands were so wedded to the concept of personal relationships that when COVID hit, they lost that connection. And in the absence of that connection, many people were expressing concern over, are they losing customer engagement as a result? And that's kind of what was the impetus to get together. And, and, and Rebecca came to, to Stan and I, my partner, and said, guys, is there any way that we can measure this relationship so that we can demonstrate the importance of reaching out and conducting a non-transactional dialogue? And I think that's the key, Bill, is that so many people are so focused on the transaction that they've lost sight of the relationship itself. And that's the essence of what Artful was presenting. So what we did was we crafted a a way of looking at the relationship, not based on traditional metrics. So for example, most people are familiar with the idea of doing a study based on brand attributes, for example. And we've done a lot of that work as well. And that concept is you, you rate the engagement, and then you look at how those customers rank the attributes, might be color, might be availability, might be price, might be any kind of an attribute. And then you zero in through something we call regression analysis on exactly what attributes are driving the relationship. Um, And it's been a very, it's a proven methodology. It's been very successful. Well, when Rebecca came to us, my partner, uh, one of our resources, Dr. David Weggie, who's, who's just brilliant when it comes to the quantitative side of things, said, you know, what we should be doing with this is we should be focusing on emotional attachment. And emotional attachment then became the essence of how we measure the relationship. And emotional attachment changes the measurement pattern from attributes to emotional markers. And the most fundamental emotional markers are trust, respect, value, pride, and commitment. And unbeknownst to many brands, their customers view the brand along these markers as much as they view the brand along attributes. And it's those markers that define how wedded an individual is to a given brand. And how tightly wedded you are to a brand really defines how resistant you are to competitive input or or offers. And if you don't pay attention to this, you'll lose that emotional attachment. And then the, the customer really only is looking at you as an object, and they're really only looking at the price point or the best promotion at the moment. Fascinating stuff. Um, Rebecca, how does this play out as a process? Because I, I would think that before Michael can start his part of the process, you have to work with that client and kind of identify where things stand now, what the goals are, what the, you know. So walk me through a little bit of um, the, the pre-research work that has to be done to, to try to kind of identify where you, how you want to apply 
this regression analysis um, and these emotional attachment components? Sure, Bill. Well, what we do is we have what we would call a four-step uh, process. And so what we would do is there's there's four components to the four steps. One is define, design, deliver, and then measure. So what we would do is we would start out by defining the scope of the situation, the scope of the relationships. And we would do some research around the pre-analysis. We would have a brand, uh, as an example, provide us with what we call customer cohorts. So these are the same people that we're going to speak to up front and that we're going to speak to again at the end of a campaign to understand how we move the needle emotionally with those cohorts. Then Dr. Wege, with uh, the help of Graybox Intel, would custom design a survey based on what we've learned from the client interviews that we're conducting along with um, understanding the leadership. So what are they charged to do? You know, we need to understand from the leaders of the company or the brand what it is they would like to accomplish, what they understand their issues and opportunities are. And then we design the survey against that, do the data collection. Dr. Wege then in Graybox would do an analysis, and then we would give a report back to the brand so that they understand sort of where their baseline sits. And then the intelligence that was gathered in that process would then feed into the next element design. So that would help me as the creative on the team put together developing the story. What does that need to look like, sound like, et cetera? Then I move into what I would call sort of a uh, creative development phase. And then we have, again, a strategic partner to help us select the relevant media. So it might be YouTube, it might be a film, it might be an email campaign. We wouldn't know that until we get into this step. And then we go ahead and we design the campaign. And once that's approved by the brand, then we execute. And it could be anywhere from three to 12 months. Now, like with any relationship, it takes time. So in order for us to really move the needle, I would say that the furthest, uh, we prefer a 12-month campaign. And then once the campaign is nearing the end, we would come back and Dr. Wege and Graybox Intel would do a second survey. And this is where Michael spoke about the change analysis, the regression analysis, and then measuring that against the correlation to financial performance. And then at the end, there would be a report and recommendations. And it was interesting. We were on a call the other day with Jim Druckmann um, with 200 Lex. And he said, you know, Rebecca, would your team then be able to um, actually perform against the recommendations? And I said, well, it would depend on what they are. And so we can possibly. Or we might have other strategic partners we would put into play at that moment. But the interesting thing is, and the thing that was so, that's gotten such a great reception with all of this is the idea that we are starting with the research component that then feeds into what is it you need to be communicating to your target audience. And they could be mature, they could be uh, one that you haven't yet had the opportunity to engage with and you'd like to. And then delivering the campaign that's, you know, compelling 
and hits all the markers that Michael referred to, and then coming back and measuring. So it is that really that that ROI that most people in in the competitive space that we're in are not doing. So I'm I'm curious when you look at that research, what kind of information, like what catches your eye? And and this could be for either one of you, but um, what are the the things that you're trying to identify? Are there particular psychological cues, emotional cues? Um, What kinds of things catch your attention? And maybe if there's an example that you could share for some work that you've done, what are what are the key things that you're trying to to look for? So one of the things along those lines, Bill, is that within our measurement system, we've got like 27 or 28 different metrics that we use to explore the different levels and variations of these markers we're discussing. And you know what we're talking about here is um, how strongly. Do you trust something? And we give them examples of that. You know, like, um, would you blindly refer this brand to a friend and, and not have to worry about it doing well for that friend? Those kinds of things. Um, can you, you know, what's your level of trust that you can order this product and it'll always do what you expect it to do? You know, what's your level of confidence that when you contact their customer service department, you're going to get exactly the same response every time. You know, these are these are aspects of things. They're marrying up. What I'm giving you examples of is we use somewhat attribute-oriented discussions, but we we frame them in the in the aspect of the emotional component, not the functional component. Okay. So we're not asking somebody, do they have good customer service and rate their customer service? That's not what we're asking them. We're asking them, can you trust it? Okay. And I think that's really the biggest difference is we're asking for that emotional response to how the brand performs for them. And one of the things that brands forget is when brands fail, customers have a very strong negative emotional response. And people are not measuring this. And, you know, just like any other negative interface that we have as human beings, we have an initial rise in our in our emotional response and then it kind of dies down, but it lingers. It's like a bad taste in our mouth. And we remember that. And I'll give you a great example. I, I live in an area where there's some incredibly good restaurants. And my wife and I wanted to go to this restaurant and it looked really, really good. And my friend said to me, "Eh, I wouldn't go there. And I just asked him, I said, why? And he said, they're inconsistent. And that was enough for the potential relationship with that that company to not get started. Just simply because my friend lacked trust, lacked confidence. And these are the things that we measure. And these are the things that Rebecca's team focuses on. And we identify, number one, have we lost trust with the customer? Have we lost respect? If we have, how have we lost it? 
Where have we lost it? And what will it take to begin rebuilding that? And we don't guess at it. We let the customer tell us that. And they will. Rebecca, how do you take an insight like that and turn it into a a point of action in a campaign? And maybe it's that insight or another insight, but how do you take those insights and translate that into a campaign to change that perception or strengthen a positive perception? Um, how, how do you, you know, turn, turn insight into action? Great question, Bill. So what I would do is I get the, I, I understand where the opportunities lie. Okay. So that's the first thing that I use when I'm working on a campaign. And then I go back in and I look at how can I effectively visually and verbally uh, attack the opportunity? And so it might be something as simple as addressing more of the details around a specific opportunity, or let's say it's a product in the furniture world. Or it might be understanding how best to use that product or service that will enhance and engage my life. Um, The whole idea behind the campaign is to move, as Michael said, this transitional behavior to one of engagement. So in other words, the campaign needs to be focused on how to drive that emotional stimuli within a, a human being, right? And so by having the opportunity to have the data and then putting that with compelling imagery and verbiage, that then resonates with the consumer. And I know it'll resonate because I've got the research and the data to tell me what it is I need to be doing. Then I create the campaign off of that. And it could be something, as I said, as simple as a detail, or it could be something quite more disparate to get them thinking differently about the brand. So if there was an issue with trust, as an example, with the brand, how do we best communicate that we heard you? We're going to improve upon that. Here's what we're doing, and here's how we're going to be doing it. And then we demonstrate it with these campaigns. That's interesting. And then, Michael, let's take this back the next step. How do you then take that and measure whether or not that goal has been achieved um, in, an, in a, I guess, an emotional component, right, in an in emotional analysis? Right. So, so let's, let's connect the dots here, Bill, like you're asking. It's one thing to measure the change in the emotional relationship. So, you know, trust is one of the more difficult items to rebuild, all right? But one of the things that we've found is if I've been a customer of a company and I've lost trust with the company's ability to deliver or whatever, my heart still wants that company to be good, okay? So if they demonstrate uh, in you know, integrity and, and true honesty in moving forward to try to improve, the likelihood that my re-engagement will occur and actually re- re-engagement occur quickly is very, very high. So 
as Rebecca was saying, at the end of the study, we go back to the same people that have identified the problem, and we ask them, as a result of our communication to you, and the communication is just not, you know, something that says, oh, we're, we're really good people here, we're really worth it, you got to try us again, that's nonsense. What, what customers need to hear is tangible effort. And what Rebecca's team does is communicate that in a very compelling way. And so the company has to make a commitment. It has to make a change. But Rebecca's group can start to lead the communications piece. And then we can come back to those people at the end, the same people, and say, as a result of this communication and as a result of what you've been seeing, how do you feel now? And we start to look at the change that's occurred. Now, the neat thing about this is we do have a, an algorithm for converting the change in the relationship and the emotional attachment to revenue. So, Bill, and I, we were talking a little bit earlier, what's the cost of weak engagement? Well, for most brands, it's invisible. They don't know what it is. And because it's invisible, it's not something they care about but the cost is really high. And it manifests itself in your cost to do any kind of sales. So when you look at the cost to do promotions, just step back for a minute and ask yourself, am I spending more? Am I having to reduce my margin more today than I did 10 years ago? Because I've got, it's just harder to get the buyer to buy from me. If that's happening to you, it's because the relationship has weakened to a point where the cost to produce a sale has gone really high. Now, if you improve the relationship, your cost to trigger sales goes way down. And that's what we measure when we come back and say, okay, how is this going to impact your performance financially? Rebecca, I'd like to talk about the, the kind of environment that we're in today for brands, um, particularly in the furniture business. What would you say to those? And I just, I guess I have a question. Do you work more on the retailer side or the manufacturer side? It's sort of an even split, to be honest. Um, well, the, the reason I ask that question is very often the retailer prefers that, that they are the brand, the, the facing, the consumer facing brand. Um, so I, I'm curious how this model might apply and um, how it might work in the man, on the manufacturer side, right? So 15, 20, 30 years ago, there were very powerful furniture brands in, in the furniture industry. And um, I think they probably didn't do some of the things that your research and that, um, that you probably could coach them on now. And so they lost trust and they're no longer here. Um, so if you look at the, the current environment, what do you think manufacturers could do to build brands to make those more valuable in the retail environment? And is there a value for the retailer in not necessarily always being the brand, but leveraging the power of some of, some of those manufacturer brands? Yeah, it's a, that's a great question. I think that, you know, in terms of the manufacturers, um, you know, let's just take somebody that's got a license as an example. And, you know, part of the commitment they make when they get a license uh, with the designer 
is to help promote and uh, bring that awareness to the market around the designer and their relationship, right? And the beautiful product that they've developed, the collections. And so what happens in this scenario is that I think it's sort of the same old, same old. You know, they go to trade shows, they do sort of what I would call the old traditional marketing. And the customer today wants more from a brand. And in such, the manufacturer then needs to be looking at how do I communicate more effectively about not just the features and the benefits of the brand, but how do I, as we've been talking about, emotionally engage the audience so that they want to buy more from my brand. And oh, by the way, my brand can be had at X retailer. So it's sort of a a strategic partnership between the vendor and the retailer today because one is expected to help promote the brand that then help promotes the overarching brand, which is the retailer. So I don't see it as an either or, I see it as an and. This is something that needs to be done together. And, you know, there were old marketing dollars that, you know, you would be expected to spend or you might get some sort of a, uh, an allowance from a, a manufacturer, et cetera. And I think all of this plays into what I would almost position as the next iteration, the next generation of this relationship, which is, again, looking at not just the transactions, but looking at the engagement piece. Um. I want to pick up on what you just said there. You used the word generation, and that actually raises um, an interesting question. There are two things I think today that that retailers wrestle with. One is there is a new generation of consumers in the marketplace, and the goal there there is to try to create a lifetime relationship with that new consumer. And the other thing that is a, a tremendous challenge, particularly for furniture stores, is dealing with what we kind of colloquially call the Amazon effect, right? Amazon has um, changed expectations around so many aspects of shopping and and I don't want to say commoditized the experience, but made it a very um, kind of transactional experience, right? It's about convenience, speed, ease of delivery, all of these other things that are almost antithetical. And it sounds like some of the work that you're doing about creating emotional connection, emotional engagement might in some ways be an antidote um, to that kind of a, of a challenge, right? Where you, where you change the discussion. So it's the convenience matters less because you have an emotional connection or you, you can, you can play on your own battlefield. In other words, right? You, you don't have to fight the battle on somebody else's turf. And the same thing with, you know, getting that younger consumer in there. How do you create that lifetime connection? So there, I guess there's kind of two questions there, but either of you feel feel free to kind of jump in and address those questions from any uh, angle that you think best. Yeah, Bill, you know, one of the things that we've experienced, we do a lot of market studies. The volume of work that we're doing is quite high. And so we're getting real intimate insight into exactly what you're describing, this whole Amazon effect. And I think you nailed it. This is the counterpunch to the depersonalization of brands that Amazon is doing. 
So when we were talking about attributes, Amazon is a great example of reducing it to its very basic fundamentals, which is price and delivery speed. How fast can I get it and how much am I going to pay for it? All of a sudden, the brand is irrelevant in the Amazon mix. And what that does is it drives everybody's margins right to the floor. And the value of what you've created and invested in is meaningless to the end user, to the consumer. So what we're doing here is rebuilding the relationship between the brand and the consumer so that the consumer recognizes there's more going on here than speed and price. And the the really neat benefit of this is that it really creates a strong, what we call competitive moat, you know, the old castle kind of analogy. It, It really creates a barrier from your customers abandoning you and going to the cheap, fast alternative. And I think right now in the furniture industry, that's a real challenge because I think people are starting to look at furniture and they're saying, I don't necessarily have to physically see this. I'll just go online and order. And, you know, there's there's a lot of benefits to that. But um, I think that it's time for those brands in the furniture industry to rethink their position and start investing in these relationships. Otherwise, they're just going to be contract manufacturers for Amazon. And I think that's uh, that's not where they want to be. You know, and I think to your point, Michael, the other piece to sort of layer on top of that then is if we look at sort of what are some of the global trends that we go back to, Bill, when you asked, you know, how do these campaigns get created and designed? I think one thing that we also look at is, you know, what's really happening in terms of global concepts. So right now, um, I was on a a marketing call with a a group of, you know, very successful and, and effective marketers. And they said, you know, there's really four things that we are looking at today. One is health, one is safety, uh, one is environment, and one is community, being a good citizen. So beyond taking the research that Graybox Intel provides for us, then we also layer in some of these other factors. You know, what is the younger consumer interested in and how do we make that authentic so that the brand can respond not only to the existing consumer, but also to perhaps a younger audience that they wish to engage. So the emotional attachment piece that Graybox does is around not just looking at, and and again, this is that this is the correct customer segment that the client's asking us to look at, but we can look at any of those audiences. And so we would take that and then layer in some of the other important factors that we know are important in the market globally. And then that also goes into the design of the campaign and the communication. Really, really interesting stuff. Do you have any examples that that you can share of how that might have played out in a particular campaign or how it might play out in a future campaign? Like, in other words, how... Take one of those those trend attributes that you you talked about. How might that be reflected um, in in a campaign? What might be the the touch point that the consumer might see that would trigger those connections in their mind? Well, let's just take community as an example. Being a good citizen, right? So it's one thing, and I think we've seen a lot of this over the years 
where brands will say that they're going to do something or going to be involved in something. And that's sort of a flavor of the month program. We're going to do it for 30 days or 60 days, and then the consumer is going to forget about it. So we really don't have to invest in it. I think those days are gone. The consumer is paying very close attention. So what we would want to make sure that we do is that we would focus on one of those that seems authentic and genuine to the brand, and then make sure that we incorporate that in the communication and or perhaps at the recommendations once the campaign has taken shape and is off the ground. So I think there's no silver bullet here. Uh, There's no magic formula. It's a layering, as I said, of putting this all into play so that the brand is seen authentically and genuine, and it touches the heart and the mind of the consumer that they're either engaged with, trying to re-engage with, or, you know, build that new audience base. Yeah, you know, I want to build on what Rebecca's saying here, Bill, and that is that when we're talking about younger audiences, as we move into the younger space, the demand on personalization goes way up. It turns out that the younger audiences really, really want things to be for them. Um, And so they're very demanding on brands to be very focused on what is important to them. Media channels, location, availability, you know, all of these kinds of things. Whereas maybe an older audience, depending on what the brand is, isn't as uh, sensitive to those kinds of things. So what Rebecca's saying is, We have to take our lead from the customer. Where are they? Okay. You know, it's the old saw. We got to go where they are. We can't, we can't meet them where we want to meet. And I think one of the traps that brands fall into is this promotional mode. And all they're doing is talking about themselves, the brand. And they're promoting it, saying, don't you want this? Don't you want this? Don't you want this? I'll give you a great example of a brand that's been doing that, and it's, it's been backfiring on them. Um, AARP is this big, huge brand, and everybody thinks, oh, they're this big, dominant player in the senior space, and this is the, the, the people that are going to be around forever. Well, it turns out that their net promoter score is in the basement. And not just the straight up net promoter score, but when you look at the comparison of promoters and detractors, there's almost no difference between the number of people who are detracting and the number of people who are promoting. This is an organization that on the surface should be very strong, but in practice is very weak. And we believe that the reason they're very weak is because they spend their whole time pushing insurance on people. Instead of focusing on serving their members and serving their customers, they're trying to push something that's important to them. And I think the essence of what we're talking about is it's not about what's important to the brand. It's about what's important to the customers the brand wants to engage. And no more so than with the younger folks. I think you raised a really interesting and important point there, because when I think of traditional furniture advertising, it's really driven, it's really focused on driving a transaction, right? Most of that advertising is, um, you know, come to the store, no payments for six years, no money down, no interest financing. 
it's very much a transaction, very much like AARP trying to sell insurance. But what the two of you are talking about here today is, um, is, is something that's attacking a different part of the sales funnel and seems to be focused on a much longer term perspective in terms of dealing with the customer. Do I understand that correctly in terms of you know, how this differs from what that more traditional model might be? I think you're on it, Bill. And, and you know, I, I would describe it less as a uh, position within the sales funnel and more of it as preparation for the field of play. So if you don't have good relationships with customers, everything you do after that doesn't matter. And so I view it as if you want to have a high-performing organization, which means your cost of sales is low and your margins are sustainable, then you've got to create an environment where your customers feel uh, that they have a good relationship with you. It's like price of admission, table stakes, whatever it is, however you define it. It's you got to have that in order to have a successful relationship. Otherwise, you're going to end up chasing customers almost like the commodities exchange chases sales of, of commodities. You know, if anybody's ever seen what that looks like, it's you don't want to have an auction oriented environment where you're chasing customers. And that's, I mean, cars, uh, furniture. There's so many different sectors that operate like that today. Airline tickets, another great example. Hotels have diminished their brands so greatly that, you know, they're just auctioning off rooms is where they've gone to. So all of these kinds of dynamics exist because they stopped trying to build these relationships. And if they, if they reframe the relationships, rebuild those relationships, the, the vulnerability to that auction environment goes way down. You know, Michael, I'd, I'd like to just uh, add on to something that you've just talked about. And that is the idea that right now in the furniture world, of course, because there's less travel and whatever, more dollars have become available to, you know, refurbish the home, you know, work on the home environment, if you will. And so the manufacturers, of course, are all scrambling because they've got lots and lots of orders that they need to fill. And there's sort of a labor pool um, void right now. So there's, you know, there's just not enough talent and labor to go around to actually get these orders out the door as fast as possible. But the danger in that, of course, it's great. And I'm sure they're trying to make up for months of, you know, sagging sales. But what happens next? And are they prepared for that? Are they even looking at that? Are they even considering that? Because this too will come to an end, you know, hopefully when COVID gets under control and we're able to manage that and people are able to get back out and travel and, you know, do this, the dollars will come away from perhaps the enhancement that's taking place right now in the home. And are the manufacturers and are the retailers prepared for that? What are they doing now to continue to engage with their customer or the retailer if you're a manufacturer so that when this dip does come, and I do feel it will come, how are they going to manage that? How are they going to continue to engage their audiences such that it just doesn't go over the cliff. I love what you're saying, Rebecca, because Bill, what we're really talking about here is blocking and tackling. 
you know, I was talking to a salesperson of a fast growing technology company. And I was listening to him describe his sales strategy. And I said, you guys are very successful with sales. What's your secret? And his response to me was, sales hasn't changed for 100 years. It's all about shaking hands, meeting people, and doing the work. And anybody that tells you different is lying to you. And I think what happens is we get all caught up in all of these shortcuts, and we lose sight of the blocking and tackling. And I think one of the key pieces of blocking and tackling for brands is these relationships. And to Rebecca's point, you can't be ready for what's next, and you can't second guess what's next, but you can have your basics in place, and that'll give you a very strong platform no matter what happens. I think that is um, there, that those last two insights there, I think, are so critical right now. Um, and that's a really, I think, a great place to wrap up and focus people's attention. What's next? And how are you going to maximize your position, your opportunity to be in the right position for what's next? I want to thank you both for taking the time today. This has been really, really informative. I've learned a ton and I hope our audience has, too. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. It's been a pleasure. I'm Bill McLaughlin with Furniture Today, and you've been listening to the On the Record podcast. Thank you for joining us. 